Okay, we're going to be in Luke 6. Actually, I'm going to start with 36. Last Sunday, we saw a more concise version of the Sermon on the Mount. We saw the impossible standard that Christ set for his followers, which really revealed to them and reveals to us that we can't live this Christian life without relying on him. Today, in this portion of scripture, we're going to see the parable of the blind leading the blind and the intertwining theme of judging. So let's jump in, verse 36. He says, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So basically, and you've heard this before, we should never judge, right? Response? I'm trying to trap you. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 1. We're going to take it through part of chapter 6. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we've said this before, leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. So get rid of that leaven, because when it spreads... You know, yeast, when yeast is in bread and it starts to make the bread rise, it actually permeates through the whole bread. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Obviously, it was much more of an offense for a believer, someone to call themselves a believer and to be committing these things, than obviously an unbeliever. We know that they're in spiritual darkness, so they don't know any better. So he's not saying not to keep company with people in the world. He's saying those who are called, called a Christian and do these these things that we shouldn't keep company with them. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who are also on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore put away from yourselves that wicked person. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? 
Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Are you thoroughly confused yet? Good. Hopefully, if I've done my job by the end of the service, you won't be confused. But there's more. One more verse. 1 Corinthians 2, 15. Just one verse. He says, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Seems to be an awful lot of judging going on in 1 Corinthians there, doesn't it? So, uh-oh, we have a problem. Paul and Jesus disagree. We finally stumbled onto one of those Bible contradictions that the world is telling us about, right? Wrong. Part of the problem can be cleared up when we go into the original Greek that the Bible was written in. Today we're going to have fun with Greek grammar. Come on, I'm, I'm not the only one who enjoys this stuff. But the following Greek words have several similar meanings, but can also be used in general for the word judge, judging, and judgment. And these words, I'm going to go back to them, but you don't have to memorize them. Crino, crisis, anacrino, diacrino, catacrino, criterion, crema, criticos, and catadicazo. I had to study that one. Now, don't worry, there's not going to be a test at the end, but it is important to give an overview of what of these words are. Some of these words are root words. Some of these words are derivative of other words. And some have subtle differences based on the prefixes of ana, Kata and dia, which, if you you know are well with English grammar, we know that in the English we also have these prefixes. So why did the Bible translators choose to translate judge, judgment, and judging for these words? Well, the answer may be found in the word judge itself, with its various meanings. According to the Webster's New World Dictionary, I'm going to read what the word judge means and its variations. Definition one. To hear and pass judgment on persons or cases in a court of law. Two, to determine the winner of a contest or settle a controversy. Three, to decree. Four, to form an idea, opinion, or estimate about any matter, like a good judge of music. Five, to criticize or censure. Six, to think or suppose. Seven, in Jewish history, to govern the book of Judges. And also, biblically, it means to condemn or damn, but it also can mean simply to make a decision. What is a judge? Well, as a legal official, and I'm just going to read some of these because there's a whole lot of them in here. As a legal official, a judge is a justice, a magistrate, a chancellor, a surrogate, a jurist, a tribune, a bencher, or a hanging judge. As a moderator, a judge is a referee, an umpire, an arbiter, a mediator, an interpreter, inspector, negotiator, intercessor, or assessor. And as a connoisseur, a judge is an expert, an authority, or a professional. Again, I haven't gone through all the definitions, but you could see that even in the English, the word for judge has a wide variety of meanings. Um, and a few things about the words that we get from the Greek and, and translates into our English, which I actually found this interesting. We get our word crime from the word crema in the Greek, our criterion from their criterion. It's actually word for word, but spelled different. Our crisis from their crisis, 
and our critical from their word kritikos. And there are other variations for this. So what is Jesus saying and what is Jesus not saying? Well, the nots are the shorter list, so I'll start with them first. Jesus is not referring to government, as we saw last week in Romans 13. The government needs judges. We have to have judges to preside over cases, civilly and criminally. He's not referring to church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, where, where we just read about what Paul spoke about, they need to, or, you know, the church needs to bar wolves from the church and protect new believers from stumbling and to also prevent division. So you can't have somebody coming off the street and sitting in the church and the church is just as debauched as the word world is. You know, we can't have that. Uh, so it's a bad example, to say the least. And it's also not referring to identifying false uh, teachers by their fruit, as we will see as we move forward. And it's also not referring to unhypocritical and loving correction between believers. We covered this in Matthew 18 some time back. I also want you to turn to James 5, 19 through 20. James 5, 19 through 20. It says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's love. If that's me and I'm starting to go the wrong way, please feel free to come love me and help me to come back to where I should be. So what is Jesus referring to? Well, it kind of ties into what Pastor Anthony was saying a few Wednesdays back in the book of James. Again, the word for judge in the Greek is krino, which means to make a decision based on the information available. Now, a lot of times that's not adequate information, and you don't get the whole picture. If you spoke to me right after I was on hold, on a half an hour on the phone with an insurance company, I might be pretty grumpy and irritated. And you would, might not have a great impression of me. Have you ever been on hold just with somebody, billing department, insurance company for like a half an hour, and they play that music that's supposed to soothe you, but after a while it becomes irritating, and you're like, you turn the volume down, and then they have to insert the message in the middle of it that says, your call is important to us, please stand by and someone will be with you shortly. If my call was so important to you, I wouldn't be on hold for a half an hour. So after a while I'm like, these stupid phone loops, I need to talk to a human, and my wife is saying, will you just calm down? But So you wouldn't get a great impression of me after talking to me, after being on, on hold for a half an hour. So it's not always a good idea to judge on first impressions. It's not often a good idea to judge someone first impressions. If you really think about it, think about the circle of friends that you have now. And did you always like them? When you first met some of your good friends now, did you ever think you might bond with them? Maybe some of you judged them by first impressions. But after you got to know them for a while, you realized, hey, this is a pretty cool person to hang out with. Uh, second thing, Jesus says, we are not to condemn or decide the fate of another Christian or, for that matter, another human being's eternal salvation. I know people who are admittedly far away from God as the East is from the West, but so was I 11 years ago, and so were many of you. And now you're here on a Sunday morning on a beautiful day listening to somebody read the Bible. We can't say who's going to hell and who's not going to hell. We don't have that right or authority, and we don't have that information. As a matter of fact, sadly, some unbelievers 
behave far better than some believers. There's some people I know that are unbelievers that I'm like, man, they would be such a great Christian if they would just give their heart to the Lord. <laughs> so, And then three, we can't self-appoint ourselves to, to the position of judge. We can't go around determining who is a good Christian and who is not a good Christian. Again, Pastor Anthony, when he spoke about judging, he gave us a list of credentials and qualities that a judge has. Do you have those credentials? I'm not quick to say that I have them. Actually, I know two Christian men, one goes to this fellowship and one goes to another, who are judges by profession. And they have to determine matters by law. And I know, and I've spoke with them, they pray before going on the, on the bench. And they, go, they approach that bench with fear and trepidation. By contrast, people who are not judges just make careless opinions about people. And that's ridiculous. Even before I go out on patrol, you know, when I suit up in my uniform and I get in my patrol car, I pray because, you know, I, I meet people all the time and somebody tells me one thing and somebody tells me another and obviously a crime has been committed. And I just pray to the Lord that he would give me wisdom in making the right judgment and how to handle the situation. God forbid I, I ruin somebody's life by arresting them and it was the wrong person. So, you know, but again, I have to make judgment calls in my job. Because if I didn't arrest anybody and I didn't write any tickets, I would probably be fired for being lazy. So I do have to make judgment calls. And four, we should never judge on appearances. Paul says there is no distinction between male and female, Jew or Greek in the body of Christ. And honestly, I can't think of any reason, maybe you can, but I can't think of any reason why we would ever judge somebody based on their appearance. What is it about people that if somebody walks in the room and they don't have the same style as you or the same hairdo or the same look, you just kind of you just kind of look at them. You know, you don't see the heart. You're just seeing an outward appearance. That's what makes us unique. You know, God made us all different. And then five, human judgments, to sum it up, are usually char characterized by the following. By gossip, people, the more people talk about somebody else, the more they become demonized in their own mind. Jealousy, hastiness, General tearing down and fault finding, pride, revenge, prejudice, for or against. I'll give you an example. I think that my son is the smartest six-year-old on the planet Earth. What, he's not? But that's my prejudice for my son. But I want to give people the benefit of the doubt so I can get the same in return. What Jesus said is not only good spiritually, but it makes perfect sense. I certainly wouldn't want anyone to hold something against me that I did five years ago, or last year, or yesterday, or a first impression that they had of me, and maybe I wasn't having the greatest of the day. You know, I, you, it, we tend to judge more harshly other people and give ourselves a pass. Somebody said it would be better if we gave others a pass and judged ourselves more critically, which it's not natural for us. But, you know, it's something Jesus also, also speaks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a command from our Lord. In Matthew 18, a few months back, we did the parable about forgiveness. And Jesus pretty much refers or makes the link between somebody's refusal to forgive, somebody who can't forgive, and damnation. That's how serious God takes forgiveness. Verse 38. He says, Give, and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In those days, when they measured dry goods, they would sell 
dry goods by a, a, a volume container. You would give the person a container and they would fill it up with dry goods and give it back to you and you would pay for it. And in reading the Old Testament, you'd read about the ephah and the core and the homer. Those were all dry goods measurements, which can be somehow equivalent to our bushel. Kind of reminds me of, um, when I think of this, I think about like when you really have a craving for potato chips, and you go to the store and you get the biggest bag of potato chips, it's like two feet tall by a foot wide, and it's really big, and then you open it up and all the air escapes, and then you look down and there's less than half a bag in there, and you go, what a bunch of cheapskates. But in this situation, in those days, if somebody wanted to be generous, what they would do is they'd take the wheat or the dry goods and they'd put it in the container and they'd shake it, shake it, shake it, press it down because it would settle. And then they would put more on and then they would continue doing that and overflow it. And that was somebody who was generous. You really got your money's worth. So Jesus wants us to display that attitude in an attitude of giving. You've heard the expression, you can't outgive God. If you have a generous attitude in general, and not just your money, people think, and it's easy to write a check, isn't it? You just do that 10% thing, you write the check, you send it in, I've done my Christian duty, and I'm done. No, it's not just your money, it's your time. And time can be more precious to us than our money. It takes a lot longer than writing a quick check. Or our forgiveness. If we have an attitude of giving our time and forgiveness, and, and all of us, then we'll never do without Do you put your time in with people? Jesus put his time in with those 12 disciples. Have you been a Christian for 10 years and you've never discipled somebody or more? And that doesn't mean that you have to have somebody following you around and you you put them up in your house. But it's a situation where you're teaching. It's you're giving yourself, you're pouring yourself into that person. You're teaching them what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a Christian, right? I remember when I was a new Christian, I had two friends in, uh, in particular that after a while with the caller ID, they would see my number and they wouldn't pick it up. But I would call them 11, 11, 30, 12, and Heather would be like, you know, they're in bed, leave them alone. No, I have to, I don't know the answer to this question. I've got to ask them this question. But no, they were very gracious with me and whenever I called, uh, they would take my calls and try to explain the Bible to me. So, you know, pour yourself into people. Whether here it's giving here or judging that we covered in verse 37, you reap what you sow, for good or for bad. It works both ways. If you judge harshly, harshly, one day you'll find yourself on the receiving end of that. If you give generously, you'll also find yourself on the receiving end of that. Verse 39. He spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Jesus states the obvious to illustrate a a spiritual truth, which he did often. He would use physical examples to explain a spiritual truth. If a blind person follows another blind person, eventually they're going to meet with peril. They're going to fall into something. But he says that a person who is taught will emulate his teacher. A false teacher who is spiritually blind and teaches somebody who's also spiritually blind because they don't know anything, will end up like their teacher. He'll be teaching them false doctrine. And I believe that the the pit they fall into is hell, because there's nowhere else for them to go when you're teaching false doctrine. Verse 40, again, also works for the, the flip side, the converse. The disciples, like us, are to be trained to be like Jesus, in an attitude of love, forgiveness, and a non-judgmental attitude towards others, not like the harsh religious teachers of that day. Verse 41, 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is a picture of hypocritical judging. Now, obviously, the example is a ridic- ridiculous example. I've got a log or a plank in my eye, and I'm looking at somebody, and they got this, I'm scrutinizing their little speck, and I want to grab it. But the obvious is that I got this thing sticking out of my eye, right? So the obvious is ridiculous, but basically, you're looking to remove a small defect from your brother or your sister's life, and you have the same, if not worse, defect in your own life. It's hypocritical. That's why I believe all teachers, well, the Bible says that all teachers are held to a higher standard. James 3.1 says, Let us not all become teachers, because don't you know we will receive a stricter judgment? I believe that the world would be a much better place if all leaders were held to that standard. Unfortunately, they're not. All sports figures, you know, all people who are in some type of, of, of position where people emulate them. And it's also easier to follow a leader who's not a hypocrite. There's a man in the police department that I work for who I have a a lot of respect for. I'll just give you his title. He's our deputy chief. The man has a, he's always punctual. Even if it's the the time to work the holiday, he comes in to work the holiday. His uniform is creased. His shoes are shined. The guy keeps himself in shape. He follows all the rules and regulations. And he wouldn't ask us to do something as patrolmen that he wouldn't do or hasn't done himself. That is a person that is very easy to take orders from. Now, in the context of spiritual matters, there were false teachers who were above the people who micromanaged everything the lay people did, but they were the biggest hypocrites going. On the flip side, Jesus, not, nor Jesus, not Jesus nor I are in a, uh, or advocating anarchy. And what I mean by that is, it doesn't mean now that I said that, that you can go to work tomorrow and say to your boss, you know, you're a hypocrite. I'm not listening to anything that you say because my pastor said so. I don't need a bunch of phone calls on Monday morning. But on the flip side, you know, uh, we, we do have to follow what's right. You know, we do have to, even if somebody's not treating us properly, we have to be good examples of Christian workers. Uh, Jesus said of the religious leaders, do what they say. Because the religious leaders knew God's law inside and out. He said, do what they say. But he said, don't do what they do. Because they're hypocrites. They knew the law. They could repeat the law, regurgitate it, but they didn't follow it. So don't follow their behavior, but if they tell you to do something that's in the law, do it because they know what they're talking about. I just want to go flip to Galatians 6. Turn to Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So, the primary motivation for removing any speck or defect in anyone's life should be love. And, Paul goes on to say that 
you should make sure that you don't have the same problem yourself. Because number one, if you're weak spiritually and you try to help somebody else, you can be tempted and overtaken by that sin. And don't think that you're something when you're not. You know, it's not for us to lord over people. Jesus said that. It's not for us to say, well, I'm much more mature than you spiritually. I've been a Christian a lot longer. Let me help you with that problem in your life. It should be motivated out of love, the Bible says. It should be done with humility. Uh, Verse 43, going back to Luke. Jesus says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. Again, Jesus also makes a transition from the physical to the spiritual. What is a fruit? In a spiritual sense, it's the product of life. They're physical manifestations that stem from a person's spiritual condition. Jesus is warning us that when it comes to something purely evil or bad fruit in a person's life, we should know enough to steer clear. It's the discernment factor. Verse 45. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, he elaborates more. He says that beware of the false prophets because they come to you as sheep, but they actually are ravenous wolves inside. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. These people have an evil agenda and won't be able to stop putting forth bad fruit. Now, this is not to say, I'm not contradicting myself what I said before. It's not to say that we're to to judge on appearance, but fruit. That is a huge difference, night and day difference. you know, what, what, what ethnicity I was born, what gender I was born, uh, my height, my weight, you know, a lot of these things I can't, I can't change. It's who, how God made me different. But if I go around and I, um, I'm harming people and I'm causing division and the, the physical manifestations out of what is in my heart, that's fruit. Again, we should never judge based on appearance or style or anything like that. Remember, the religious leaders of the day, which they're referring to these leaders, put their best foot forward in appearance. Their manner of attire was perfect. It was showy. They were ostentatious, fancy vestments. They made a pretense of religiosity. But they were evil inside. And if everything appears to be right, that's why we can't judge on appearances. Because on the converse, if we look at somebody and they look appealing to us, you know, their hair is done a certain way, or maybe they speak eloquently, or and they wear nice clothing, and we're... Our eyes are naturally drawn to that person. You know, they're a savvy speaker. They, they, they act like they know who you are in your soul and they, you know, they say things that you want to hear, flattering things. But false fruit can show up in false doctrine. Uh, it's like the, the whitewashed tombs that Jesus spoke of. When he spoke about these religious leaders, their appearance was perfect, impeccable. But he said, you are like whitewashed tombs. You appear good on the outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. Verse 46, Jesus says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. I also want to turn to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. 
parallel gospel on this. Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So again, it really goes back to the heart again. And the bottom line is, do we know who those people are? There's many people casting out demons and prophesying in the Lord's name and doing all these things. Can we say who the sheep from the goats are? No, that's not our job. Jesus said there will come a time where he will separate the true believers from the false believers. But again, we can't do that. We don't have the ability to do that. Uh, There are hypocritical so-called Christians who are self-deceived. And even Jesus said that many will speak in his name and do the things in his name, but he's going to say, depart from me. What does that mean? Not going to make it to heaven. And the person who built the home on the sand is the person who is like giving lip service to Christ. And it makes sense. If any of you worked for worked with construction, you realize that if you're going to build an addition or a home or something, you got to have a footing. You got to dig. You got to excavate. You got to pour a footing, like solid footing. We use concrete. They used stone back then. And then you would start putting your foundation on it, and you'd build your home. If you built your house on sand. You know, all it takes is the groundwater changes and the storm or a flood and shifting in the, you know, in that material and the house is going to shift, right, or, or turn or whatever. It's probably going to fall apart. But if you build your house on something solid, whether it be concrete or, or rock, solid rock, like Jesus said, you know, the storms are going to come, the floods are going to come, that house is still going to stand. Now, I believe that he's referring to himself as the rock. In the Old Testament, God was the rock. There's no question about it. In the New Testament, Jesus is the rock. He is the rock that the church is built upon. And when you built your house on that rock, on that solid rock, who's Christ Jesus, you can't go wrong. Show me a person who, who um, you know, weathers those storms in life when things come, and they're, they're strong. You, you say to yourself, I bet that person's a Christian, and I'll show you a strong Christian. So judging, bottom line, there's a saying that goes like this. You may be surprised to see some people who actually make it to heaven. And you also may be surprised by some people you think are going to make it to heaven, but don't make it to heaven. So from our perspective, there's no way, there's no way to know who's going to make it and who's not going to. So why waste your time? It's really an attempt in futility. So you shouldn't do that from, at least from a waste of time standpoint, but it's also a command from God. And two, if you're going to confront someone about something they're doing, Make sure you're not doing the same thing yourself. And if you are, clean out your own skeletons in your own closet before you go to somebody else. It's the speck versus plank doctrine. Three, if you're going to confront someone, you better do it in love and make sure that your motives are pure and without hypocrisy. I want to read 2 Timothy 2.24. Second Timothy 2.24-26. He says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, 
and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So the question is, do we go to people for our good or their good? Do we go to somebody who's irritating us because it makes us feel better to get it off our chest? Or are we going to them because we're really concerned for them and their welfare? Those are the things we have to ask ourselves. And four, it's better to focus on our own walk with the Lord than trying to focus on everybody else's walk. Sometimes we can get so caught up with what everybody else is doing that we don't see ourselves. Uh, I love this, this scripture Paul says in the letter to Thessalonians. He actually says that we need to mind our own business and lead a quiet life. So when you were a kid and somebody did something wrong, he said, mind your own business. That comes from the Bible. Isn't that great? Number five, if you absolutely have to make a decision or determination on someone else's behavior, it should be for correction and restoration, protection of others in the church, and so that it doesn't cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble, and so that the confrontation is to help, or the meeting, not confrontation, that's not a good word, is to help the person get on the right track because their behavior may harm themselves also. So, you know, we can dissect this all day long, but Jesus really made it simple. He says, don't judge and you will not be judged. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Don't condemn and you will not be condemned. It's a very simple equation that we need to follow. And the bottom line is it's the motives of the heart. It always comes down to the motives of the heart, doesn't it? It's what are we, you know, stopping ourselves and thinking, why am I doing this? What is my motivation? Is our behavior, in, uh, does it have biblical grounds? And is the motivation for the welfare of others? And these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves all the time.